0: Today on The Black Goat, we're going to talk about being an open science person on the job market and what that means. Also, this is the first episode we've recorded since we launched, so we'll talk about what that's been like. And two, count them two letters today. Hi everyone, and welcome to episode six of the Black Blackout. Uh, my name is Sanjay Srivastava. With me, as always, are Alexa Tullett. Hi, Sanjay. And Samin Vizier. Hi, Sanjay. So this is the first episode that we're recording since we like launched and let let people find out uh, about <laughs> what we're doing. So we we recorded. We had like five uh, five episodes. We we sort of release three and then decided to go on this every two weeks schedule um and we think we're going to do a double episode the last one we recorded and this one uh at the same time but uh it's been kind of interesting hasn't it like i had no idea what what kind of reaction if there was even going to be a reaction we were going to get
1: it's been so weird (laughs) I felt really nervous since the beginning, just being recorded. Like as soon as like we started recording, I was like, "Oh my gosh, I should watch what I say." Like, (laughs) who knows what's gonna hear that, or um, who knows who's gonna hear this? Um, But then now I have like more, like specific faces to put to that imaginary audience, and that's different in its own weird way. I think. Plus. Right, like
0: you're you're imagining the people who've responded to us, like those people specifically, like. What's what's this person thinking <laughs> as they're sitting and listening to us?
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I couldn't get over like I, it was so weird to me that people were listening to us. And I remember like people I was at a conference and people were telling me that they listened to us or like especially when it's people outside the field. Like I remember talking to one person who told me that she had listened to us, and I was, I, I was like, "Thank you." But I felt like someone was telling me that like they really liked the outfit I was trying on when I was home alone <laughs> in my apartment last night. <laughs> and I was like, "I think that's a compliment," but like, what are you doing listening to that? Yeah. You're like, mind your own business. <laughs> yeah, no, but it is super flattering. But like, I, I, it's funny how I like had this like very unconscious assumption that nobody was gonna listen.
0: Right. Right, it is weird because it's like yeah, the three of us uh, we're we're sitting here on Skype right now, just like talking to each other. But you know, then anyway, I don't even want to think about it. That's going to like <laughs> fuck me up and throw me off, right? But, That's I what think the answer
1: is just we need to escalate the amount of alcohol we drink before yeah. each episode. So.
0: <laughs> yeah, but no people people have been I mean people have been super nice about it. It's been really cool that you know I, I think the I think the imposter syndrome. Uh, episode and talking about mental health resonated with a lot of people. Angelique Kramer wrote this really cool blog post, which we'll we'll link in the show notes um, about imposter syndrome. Kind of, uh, I think, sort of taking our kind of unstructured conversation and then running with it and sort of talking about like specific ways that academia really sort of plays on imposter syndrome. So I thought that was really cool that like she she sort of took this thing we talked about and and wrote this really nice blog post about it.
2: Yeah, maybe all your feedback has been positive, but people keep telling me that I need to get a bi- better microphone because I don't sound as good as Sanjay. And I'm like, no, guys, Sanjay just sounds really good. He just has a really good <laughs> voice. <laughs> I do have a good microphone.
0: Uh, <laughs> it's just that, all about the microphones. So yeah, it's it's all about the it's all about the equipment. Um, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, Alexa, you you, well, uh, um, you, oh, you guys both sound good to me. I, so I don't know, I don't know what that's all about. Thanks.
1: <laughs> that's good to hear because I sound terrible to myself listening to these podcasts and making sure that they sound okay is like torture.
0: <laughs> I know. Yeah, that was. I mean, that was one of the things that like we we listened to the first three episodes before we put them up, and and uh, like having to sit and listen to my voice was like. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you. I feel that like way about it. your I,
1: voice too, Sanjay. <laughs> yeah.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. You really could have fucked me up, Samin, because, you, you know, you already make fun of my posture. And now, like, if, <laughs> no, or, no, I guess my. She makes fun of my of your posture voice. too, <laughs> Wait, oh, is that a thing? Is that a Samin thing? Actually, it's my, <laughs> no, just, it's my gait, yeah. not my yeah, posture. Actually, both of you. Both of you guys
2: <laughs> talk funny. It's true. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: <laughs> That's so mean. But in
2: very different ways. It says
1: that's like something that you do every day for a long time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I can't control it. Stop. Uh anyway. That that is actually I, I have to say that that's Kind of a talent to be able to make fun of your friends' like gait and posture, and them to feel good about it because that—that's like <laughs> that's some dangerous territory. I, mean. <laughs> I don't know if you want. I'm I'm, I'm kind of impressed that behavior. you did that, and I didn't end up feeling shitty afterwards. Uh, that's good. Um, I'm glad.
2: <laughs> I, maybe I need to be more careful.
0: Uh, well, so uh, I, one of the other cool things that happened was that um, again, I I didn't know how the the whole like letters thing that we decided to do. I thought it was a cool idea. You guys came up with it. Um, and uh but I, I didn't know like what people would think of it but we got a ton of emails from pe- i mean not a ton but, you know we got a bunch of emails from people which is kind of cool um so uh yeah i think people just like there's a lot on people's minds that they want to hear someone talking about and want to want to hear addressed and i thought that was really cool yeah Me
2: too. i think i, I think I think, think we we'll have, have w- to do more than two, more than one letter for a while, because
1: I, I feel I feel like I really want to get to all of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We got more letters than I anticipated, um, and I think I've just been surprised at like, like often when people ask me like what interesting like happened to you today or like how was your day, like one of the first things I think of is like what people talked about in their letters. Like, um, yeah, it's been really interesting to get insight into the kinds of things that people are thinking about and worrying about and things like that
0: yeah well so along those lines we uh we decided we're going to do two today right so should yes. we should we start with our first letter
1: um sure yeah all right uh our first letter starts uh dear the black goat i think that one of my biggest barriers to productivity and doing better research in graduate school has been trying to come up as more knowledgeable than i really am Especially early in graduate school, when faced with something I didn't fully understand, I would often try to project competence instead of admitting the limits of my knowledge. This was anxiety-provoking and also really stifled opportunities to learn and improve my research. Oddly enough, when you claim to know something, people don't offer to teach it to you. Have, you, uh, have any of you encountered this problem in grad school or later? And if so, did anything help you get past it? Do you have advice on how to help junior students get past this tendency? Uh, sincerely, Anonymous.
2: I can totally relate to this um, both within and outside of the academic context. So, like, my popular knowledge is zero, and so often people will be talking about, like... I mean, honestly, like, there was some stuff about Star Wars on Facebook today, and I'm, like it didn't, isn't that over? Like, didn't we already do Star Wars? <laughs> what? I don't, I don't know what's <laughs> what? going on. And like, I'm scared to no admit it sometimes. But even like cool things, not just nerdy things. Like, I just don't know. I don't know. Hey, wait, so oh, wait, 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 wait,
0: What What division did you just put Star Wars? <laughs> uh, what side of that division? Anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this, this reminded me of an episode when, when I was in graduate school, um, my, I went, uh, my advisor Ravenna Helson had a bunch of students, grad students, up to her house. And her husband, Henry Helson, who's since passed away, um, he was, you know, the two of them were hosting and it was it was wonderful. And like we go there and like, you know, they're they're making us martinis and anyway, it was just really it was really fun. And Henry was a super interesting guy, you know. He made his own wine and he played the violin. Um and I had met him a few times before and I just remember at this one party at their house. Um, he was a math professor and I thought I've never talked to Henry about his work, about his research, so I'm going to ask him and so I asked Henry uh, I'm like, Henry, we've never talked about your, your research, tell me about what you do and his eyes light up and he goes, well of course, you're familiar with, and then it was three minutes of words <laughs> I did not understand, <laughs> and and but that and uh, no, I knew I knew two words: Fourier transform. That that those words were in there somewhere. Wow. Um, I have
2: no idea what that
0: means. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's something something to do with waves. Uh, um, but uh, <laughs> okay, so I don't see here. I'm doing it. I don't even know. I don't actually know <laughs> what that means. I just know it has something to do with waves. Um, I, I but feel anyway, that way every was,
2: time someone talks about Poisson distributions. <laughs> I, I knew what that meant at one point, and then I knew again like two years later, and then like last week, someone mentioned it, and I remembered for a minute. But every time it comes up, I have to yeah. like remember what it is.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think what stuck me with, with me about that was he began with, "Well, of course you're familiar with," right? And then, and and it was such a stark episode of how I think that happens conversationally all the time in mm-hmm. academia, which mm-hmm. is you know people people don't know what other people are familiar with and so sometimes you know sometimes people overexplain stuff you know they they mansplain or they just explain if they're not a man or you know whatever but uh um but then you know the other end of it is like people just assume that you know what I'm talking about and they'll launch into the middle of something and and we're in a field full of specialized knowledge and so, of course, people don't always know what we're talking about. But that creates this pressure to sort of play along with that yeah. uh, when someone just starts talking about something. You know, Conversationally, if you start talking about something and you don't explain it, you're signaling to other people that you assume they know what you're talking about. And when, yeah. when older people, when higher status people, when more senior graduate students, when whoever does that, I totally see where you know, this letter writer is coming from because I think we encounter those situations all the time.
2: Yeah, my favorite example of this is uh, I, when I was just starting out my first year as an assistant professor at WashU, and I went to department colloquium, and it was a cognitive psychologist, so obviously I didn't understand a lot of stuff. But they talked about this method, the DRM method, as if everybody knew what that was. And I was like, that's weird. Like, it's initials, it's an acronym, like, how could everyone know? And later I was hanging out with my friends, Roddy Roediger and Kathleen McDermott, and I was ranting about how, like, why did this speaker assume that we all know what the DRM method is? And they were laughing, and then after they, they let me go on for a while, and then they, like, told me that it stands for Dease, Rodiger and McDermott. <laughs> so the two of them. <laughs> but the coolest thing, so I was, like, super, super embarrassed, right? And I should have been, like, I should have known what the DRM method was. But they were so cool about it. Like, they teased me about it. I mean, and, you know, Roddy Roediger is about as, like, high status as you can get. Um, and they were my senior colleagues when I didn't have tenure and all this stuff, but, you know, and this was characteristic of them, as I learned later, they're just super nice people, and, like, they don't take themselves too seriously, so one lesson I took from that is, if people make you feel dumb for not knowing something, even in the case where you really should know, (laughs) um, it's kind of says something about them, I mean, that doesn't really help if, if it ends up affecting the opportunities they give you, and so on, but... It's If you do show your ignorance, it's a chance to see who's going to, like, be a decent person and, and teach you or, like, you
1: know. I remember, um, so, when I took your class at, uh, at sip, CISP. Nope. nope. <laughs> <laughs> Is it CISP? CISP, yeah. Um, yeah, so, one of the papers that we read was a paper that you wrote. And I'm pretty sure that I didn't read it because I didn't read most of the things that we read <laughs> um, and uh, and then I asked you later what, what I thought was like a good question about it which was something that was like what the paper was about like I think I asked you like when are you going to be like when are you going to have the most self knowledge when are you going to be the most accurate about yourself um, which was like what the entire paper was about um, and you answered that question very gracefully um, and I only learned later that like Uh, I'd asked you a question that I definitely should have known the answer to (laughs) before I asked it. Um, But yeah, that's an example of that for me. But actually, like, so when I read this question, um, I really, I found it really easy to identify with because I think that, um, I think that, like, I felt that way as well. So I think there's some point in your um, career, maybe it's like in grad school or something, where it's, really useful to transition from like trying to demonstrate your uh, intelligence to um, being more open about the things that you don't know. So I think maybe in undergrad, most of the like most of the ways in which you're evaluated involve just like showing what you already know. Um, And so you get used to that being sort of the thing that you're trying to do is like prove the knowledge that you already have. And then I found that, like, in grad school, I started with that approach where, like, basically every interaction I was, um, like, trying to demonstrate what I know and trying to prove myself. Um, and then at some point, I guess, like, I, I stopped doing that or I tried more to take opportunities to, like, learn from other people and acknowledge the things that I didn't know. Um, and that felt like a big relief to me, actually. So I felt that pressure to be constantly, like... Um, proving my knowledge to other people. And then when I stopped doing that, uh, yeah, it was like a really nice feeling to to feel like I wasn't always trying to prove myself. And so when grad students ask me if there's like something I would tell my former self or something like that, um, that's usually what I say is that I would tell my former self to like uh, stop trying to prove yourself and start just like trying to like learn from other people.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think having... <clears throat> having someone you can talk to and say, "Am I supposed to know this?" Because I think I think a lot of times this, you know, what, what the letter writer is talking about is that they're they're you know they feel anxious about uh, admitting the limits of their knowledge, um, and so finding a person who's safe to do that with can be helpful. Um, uh, you know, there, it, what this reminds me of, and especially you mentioning like undergrads and that kind of thing, it reminds me of there's this really interesting phenomenon that economists have talked about called counter-signaling, and it's this idea that people in the middle of a hierarchy often do the most signaling about their competence because, or about whatever resources or whatever it is. Because if you're at the top, you're like, I'm Bill fucking Gates, you know who yeah. I am. And if you're at the bottom, it's like you're at the bottom, and it's the people in the middle. And I, I think there was a study showing that, like, it was, like, associate professors or, like, people sort of mid-career are the most likely to put comma PhD in their email signatures. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and you see this in branding, like, in the, you know, in Ralph Lauren, like, it's the the sort of the polo line has the giant horse to make sure everyone knows you're wearing polo, but then his like, $3,000 suits that he makes for business people um, don't have any branding on them. Uh, and, and so it just shows up everywhere. And so I think this is... This is really a sort of middle of the middle of the hierarchy kind of concern. Where if you're a rank amateur, you're not worried about people knowing you don't know because you're not supposed to. And if you're like, you know, I mean, Samin can title her blog "Sometimes I'm Wrong," which I think is great. But it's like it's it's safer in some ways for for you to do that than for you know a graduate student to to make that kind of signal.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. One more thing about this, I think people underestimate how bad it's going to look if they get caught out pretending to know something they don't. Um, mm-hmm. And I actually think that happens quite a bit, because usually like, when someone brings something up, if you smile and nod and be like, uh-huh, I know what you're talking about, then the conversation's going to keep going. And so, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I learned that. I feel like that. I've had that experience many, many times, especially because I'm on the quiet side. So I'm not going to interrupt someone to tell them that I don't know what they're talking about. And then later I realize they assume that I did. And then I'm like really embarrassed and so on. So now I really want to err on this side of, like, stopping people and be like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about, so we're going to have to back up here. And yeah, it's a lot easier to do that now. But I I do think it's something to consider that people, if you do pretend to know something, you might get caught out. And that, I think, has a pretty high cost to maybe higher often than admitting that you don't know it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the the challenge is just to, you know, I've found that, like, the more you... The more I do, the more I admit things. The kind of it gets reinforced, and so making sure like you start doing it with people that are going to reinforce it for you, that are going to you know credit you for for asking those questions, or are going to you know like like your experience with Kathleen and Roddy, that are going to laugh with you and and you know be kind about it. Um, and that if that makes you more comfortable, then then maybe you'll take more risks doing it. I hope. I don't know. Mm-hmm.
1: Do you guys think there are times when you can say that you don't know things too much? Um, So, yeah, I'm really afraid of the, like, getting called out for pretending that you know something when you don't. So I think that I say I don't know to things, like, fairly often and acknowledge that I'm, like, not really an expert on things or um, there's a lot that I don't know about something. Um, And I think that there are at least some people who would argue that that's... Um, not a good strategy or it can be problematic or you should be more assertive about what you do know or something?
2: I don't want to be around those people. I mean, I know those people (laughs) exist, but I feel like so much of my life is trying to detect who those people are and run away from them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I feel like yeah. saying I don't know things is a good way to weed out the people who only want to talk to people who act like they know everything. You know, like, right. I do think, you know, and even, like, with journalists or things like that, I know I'm going to turn some of them off when I say that, like, I I don't have enough certainty about some of my findings to talk about them or whatever, but I don't want to talk to the kinds of people who would prefer false confidence or...
0: Yeah. I think there's... I think when, when it's done sincerely it's not a problem I think I can think of a couple kinds of situations where people do it where it's bad and like one would be when it's sort of like showing off your status like I don't you know there there's a you know there there's a famous blogger who often posts about how he's only ever published one theorem and it was wrong and to me that person it doesn't it, does, it doesn't exude humility every time that happens I'm not gonna name the person but uh, people probably know who it is uh, um, so I think that that's you know there there's sort of there's a way it can be kind of show off um and there's also a way that like feigning ignorance can be used to like drag down a conversation so there are things like that that I think are problematic but I think if you like sincerely don't know something and your sincere read is that it's something that like knowing it would Make you part of the conversation, or it would be reasonable to ask. I don't think in that in those cases I don't think you can do it too much. I, I, but maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that's I don't know. That's that's yeah. I don't know. Um, well, should we should we read our, Do we do we feel like we've we've gotten that one? Should we go on to our second letter?
1: Yeah, I think nailed we nailed it. Our second letter.
0: All right, nailed it. Awesome. All right, Alexa, you want to read us our second letter?
1: I do. Um, okay, second letter. Dear the Black Goat. I recently reviewed a request uh, to review a manuscript. Sorry, I received a request to review manuscript. The author's names were not blinded. I also know that one of the authors is a serial sexual harasser. I turned down the review request because I said that I did not feel I could be objective. Is this the right way to handle the situation? What should I have done differently? sincerely trying to do the right thing but not doing nearly enough
0: so when I first when I first read this letter, my first thought wasn't. Yes, you should or no, you shouldn't. My first thought was, this is a letter that only happens in a world where we don't have the right ways to deal with serial sexual harassers in our field right like that that just stood out to me that like the fact that someone's even facing this dilemma of you know do because you know you, you can you can say like as a starting point, you can say okay the the ideas in the manuscript are the ideas in the manuscript. we should separate from the author, blah blah blah." Um, and and as a sort of like freestanding principle, divorced from any other consideration, I actually you know I was just sounded very dismissive, but I actually believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't take these things out of that context, and and so I I saw this letter and I just thought this is you know this is a case where someone's looking for a way to hold somebody accountable. That's not the way you're supposed to. But why are they looking for it? Well, because the way that you're supposed to they don't feel as adequate to the task. Right. And they're probably right.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the simple answer is if you don't feel you can be objective, you should turn down the review request. And so then the question is, like, is knowing that someone's a serial sexual harasser, does that automatically make you not able to be objective or not? Maybe it depends on who you are and how much you care about that kind of thing or other details of the circumstance. So I think, like, one clear-cut thing I, I feel about this is that if you do introspect and think you can't be objective, then that makes that easy for this specific narrow question. Um, If you think you can, then it's, I think, more complicated about whether you should trust that self-perception or not. And, but, and that, yeah, this is a way to kind of dodge the bigger question, (laughs) because I think that, uh, yeah, this is getting at, like, what should the consequences be? I, I don't think the consequences should come into play during the peer review process. Um, but I agree with Sanjay that I think that then that says, okay, well, should there be no consequences or when when should it affect, like, whether you invite somebody to be on your symposium or should it affect, you know, what kinds of decisions can it affect or can't it, and how much can we control those things?
1: I'm curious, like, in a circumstance like this, how do you indicate to the editor that you have a conflict of interest? Do you just say, like, ambiguously, I don't think I can be objective in... Like reviewing this, so um, I'm going to decline, or do you provide more of an explanation than that? Yeah, I think you could just say that you can't be objective, or you could say that you have a conflict of interest, or
2: something like that, yeah. I don't Uh think that you usually have to explain what that conflict
1: is.
0: Mm -hmm. So let let me me just sort of put out uh, an opposite argument, just to kind of see what you all think of this, which is and this, you know, I'm thinking of, like, uh, I, I've seen this play out in, like, like Roman Polanski's an example, right, where, you know, uh, a director who um, uh, raped a 14-year-old girl and then fled the country and people celebrate his work and, and uh, or do I have to say, I can't remember, he, I think it's unambiguous, right, I'm, I don't have to say allegedly, I can't remember the details of that case. Now. Anyway, Um uh, I apologize if I'm supposed to say allegedly, but fuck it, he raped somebody. Um, uh. So, so what people will say is, is, you know, they'll make some people will make this argument: look, you should separate the work from the author, right? That if it's the film stands on its own, blah blah blah. And I think that's a more complicated argument in art even than it is in science. But let's say even you accept that, people will also say, look, people like a person materially benefits from their work from the reception of their work they they make money they make status they they all these kinds of things right and so as so I, again i'm not i'm not necessarily endorsing this argument but i want to kind of play it out like somebody somebody who is doing things that harm science if they are serially let's assume that the letter writer means serial sexual harasser of other in scientists this person no. in in the workplace yeah um uh by letting them advance their work, they're advancing their career. They're remaining in the field, able to continue doing this, etc. So again, I, I, I'm not, I'm not sure where I stand on this argument, but I, I think it's one worth sort of articulating, to kind of think about because I, it's it's one that I think I've heard serious people make this kind of argument in film and that, and other places.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that I don't know how much I believe this, but sometimes I'm tempted to think that we should preserve the purity of peer review and that that's not the place for these things to play out. But there's so many other domains in science where we can choose like who to invite as a speaker, who to include on in our symposium, who to collaborate with. And those all have consequences, too. And I think there it's more ethical to choose in part based on whether you share that person's values and you can do on their behavior and so on. Um, but maybe that's too simple of an answer.
1: Well, I think in those cases, you don't have to um, give an explanation for your decision, right? Like, you can decide who you're going to invite to a symposium or who you, you're going to invite um, to give a talk. And but you don't you have st- to justify your decision, really. You
2: still have an ethical responsibility not to base it on unfair criteria, I think.
1: I agree. Um, but in the situation where you're reviewing somebody's paper and you know, you can't be objective, but you have to give a reason why you make the decision on the paper that you do there. You also introduce an element of like, um, non-transparency, right? Like you're going to, let's say you reject this person's paper because you like in an extreme example, because you want to be punitive, um, for their behavior, sort of like outside of this context. Um, then you have to give, a fake reason yeah yeah i think rejecting the person's paper or or
2: judging it more harshly because of their behavior in another context is totally not okay like i would never consider doing that i think the question is should you feel ethically compromised let's say you agree to review it and you think it's good and you give it a positive review like should you feel like you did something kind of slimy because you helped someone get ahead who you know you when you could have just opted out of that role um i think that's the more complicated ethical dilemma Hmm. But yeah, I think it's. Yeah. I think everyone would agree that review agree, accepting the review and then being biased in a negative direction. I think everyone would agree that's not okay. Maybe not. Maybe it's not as black and white, but I
1: I think it's clearly not okay.
0: Yeah. But then, and, but then yeah. if you
1: accept the review, then you. Okay, so you're saying that you can still reject it, but you have to be. Really I think you shouldn't sure accept the review objective.
2: if right. I think you shouldn't accept the review unless you can be sure that you're being objective, which is like. Very hard to do in this situation, I think. But I don't know.
0: I don't yeah. know. yeah, maybe not so,
2: impossible.
0: So but d- d- that you you feel like you can, you know, to to sort of maybe you know objective, not in a perfect sense, but right. to to a sort of normal amount separate. Just like you know, you would somebody you felt positively about, you would try to separate your evaluation of the work from your evaluation of the person. So you're saying if it comes down to whether you feel like you could separate your evaluation of the work from the person to the same amount that you normally do or normally should strive to yeah i mean i think what it also raises just that in going back to where i started that there may sometimes for some people be ways that they have available to them of addressing the underlying sexual harassment issue through appropriate channels or of Working to create those channels, and that obviously depends a huge amount on you know, are we talking about a postdoc reviewing a paper? Are we talking about you know, mm-hmm. a president of an association reviewing a paper, et cetera? Um, yeah, so so you know, in an ideal world, you'd address the sexual harassment through channels designed for addressing sexual harassment, and you would address the quality of scientific work through channels for that, mm-hmm. and and yeah, and so maybe one way to deal with this. Situation. Even if you accept the review, because you feel like you can be sort of, you know, fair enough, is is to you know look for opportunities to make those other changes.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. All right. All right. Uh, So should we should we get on to our main event?
2: Yeah, let's do it. The,
0: The main event. All right. So uh, we wanted to talk today about, uh, kind of for our main topic, um, being, being an open science person on the job market. That, that was kind of how we framed it when we were sort of brainstorming ideas. And, and Samin, I think you were the one who, who said we should start with, like, what is that? What is, what is the, the, that feels like, to some people, that's going to be a loaded phrase, open science person. Like, what, what do we even mean before we start talking about this? Uh, yeah, what yeah. does that mean?
2: Yeah. I feel like I've heard a lot of people um, say, well, yeah, like I've tripled my sample sizes and I pre-register everything and I disclose everything in my papers, but I'm not an open science person because blah, blah, blah. Like they hold themselves to an impossibly high standard Mm -hmm. and they, and and in some cases it might just be that they don't want that label. They don't identify with it, but in some cases I Mm -hmm. think they want it and they think they haven't earned it. Um, And so I think, it, one thing we just don't know. We don't know the distribution of like what makes you on the high end of the distribution of these kinds of practices. If you adopt one or two of them, does that put you you know, in the category of people who are doing more than the average person um, and which ones and so on? But I think most people overestimate how much other people are doing these practices. And just if you flip through journals, you can see like very, very few people pre-register, at least of the studies that are coming out now, which were pr- presumably run in the last year or two, Um, so often if you're doing, you know, one or two of these practices and by these practices, I mean like being more transparent, sharing your data and pre-registering, disclosing flexibility in data analysis, things like that. Um, if you're doing one or two of those things, you're probably ahead of the curve. I mean, it's an empirical question. We Mm -hmm. don't really know.
0: Um, Mm -hmm.
2: or maybe even just if you want to do those things, even if you can't right now, because you're in a lab that won't let you or something like that, but, I think even being committed to those ideals might put you in a part of the distribution where I think it's valid to claim that this is something distinguished mm-hmm. that distinguishes you.
0: Yeah, I think the I mean the open science person feels like it's a it's a sort of shorthand for a person who does the does is doing some of these practices and, and so I guess that maybe a different way of framing the question is like you know, how do you represent open science practices in your record when you're applying for jobs,
2: right. or values. Yeah. I think values or practices,
1: because yeah.
0: yeah. I think there
2: are plenty of people who haven't had a chance to put them into practice yet, but it's really important to them, and I think that's right. yeah. important too.
1: Yeah, I think like if I were on a hiring committee, um, I would absolutely care about like the kinds of open science practices that people engage in, but I would also care about their values. Um, so I would be like more interested in hiring somebody who had values that were consistent with open science, even if they didn't have a lot of, like, demonstrated use of open science practices.
2: I mean, we yeah. would be hypocrites if we required demonstrated use of open practices. Like, even among the three of us, like, how much have we done these things, right? Yeah, like, right. I haven't published a pre-registered study. I haven't... I've only started sharing my data recently. So I feel like it's a lot to ask of job candidates that they do more than those of us with tenure or right.
0: doing. Yeah. So we, we had... Uh, we had two job searches this year, and one in Cogniro and one in social personality, and I was on the social personality committee. And both ads, actually, so so we as a department uh, put language into the ads saying, um, I've, I'm trying to remember exactly, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but it was something to the effect of, you know, uh, we value open and reproducible science. We invite applicants to address uh, how this you know, these values or whatever are reflected in their work or in their plans for future work. And so, Mm -hmm. and we were, yeah, we had very much this conversation um, saying, look, we don't, you know, both before and and during the process, uh, um, you know, we don't have, there's not like a set of norms that you can hold everybody out there in the world to the field is changing, the whole reason we're putting this into an ad is because things are changing. Like if, if there were standard norms, you wouldn't need to say it in an ad because everyone would just do it, right? Um, and so it was really, you know, and we're a we're, uh, University of Oregon is a very open science friendly department has been my impression relative to others. And so people here are generally kind of on board with the ideas. Now we're still very much figuring out like what that looks like in hiring and in promotion tenure and that kind of thing. But Anyway, so so that that was something that from even from us that we're a department that like we're really trying a lot of us are adopting pre-registration our grad students are super excited about it um and and you know other other kinds of open science tools um even for us we We didn't have a vision in mind of what that's supposed to look like, so and I think that but that complicates it because I think for applicants, they know that there are some departments out there that are you know we're kind of on one end of a continuum, and there are some that are in other places along a continuum right where people might you know there might be people who who feel like this is a contested issue or some of the specific recommendations are contested or, or they feel uneasy, like kind of like the, the people who like, well, I'm, uh, I'm okay with making my data open, but I'm, I don't want to be one of these like, you know, mean people on the internet or whatever they think open science is about. So, so I think there's, I think for, for an applicant, there's, you know, there, there there's some genuine questions where sometimes, like in part, we put that in our ad because we wanted people to feel comfortable telling us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I know I've talked to people who they're not sure if uh, what they should say in their application or how they should talk about it because they know that there are places out there that you know there are sort of varied sentiments.
1: Yeah, I'm curious about your both of your senses of both. Actually, well, for now, let's just talk about like the label of being like an open science person. Um, Do you think that that can work against people? So that's something that my graduate students ask me. um, And I've also been given like explicit advice um, from people who are more senior to me to me um, to tone down like the extent to which I identify with open science and present myself as an open science person.
2: Yeah, I think it definitely can hurt people. Um, I've heard people talk about, like, well, yeah, I do pre registration, blah, 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 but I'm not like Andrew Gelman or Uli Shimak or blah, blah, blah. Right. And I mean, I, yeah, I feel bad naming their names. I think that they do a lot of good. I don't want to imply that no one would want to be associated with them or anything like that. But I think that there are some people who think it means a particular thing that it doesn't necessarily mean, um, mm-hmm. or who think that the thing that it means, maybe that it actually does mean, it is a bad thing when, Maybe that shouldn't
1: be a bad thing mm-hmm. um, If you were to um, give advice to somebody in terms of how to present yourself that like so is it possible to cater to both um, both markets, and if so, like how do you do that? like cater to the people who want you to be an open science person and cater the peop- to the people who are scared of open science people or dislike them it's hard because also part of
2: allaying like assuaging the fears that people have about you know what they they're afraid it might mean takes a track record right it takes a track record of showing that you're not going to like Mm -hmm. um look down on other people or attack people or things like that if that's what they're worried about and if Mm -hmm. you're coming out of grad school you're not going to have a public track record of behaving yourself right you've always behaved yourself because there's not much public record of your behavior um
0: that makes it really tough. I yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you know, so my the sort of when I've had conversations with people and also my sense of having, you know, it was really interesting reading applications and seeing how people responded to this stuff in our ad. And I think uh, you know, and, and plenty of people didn't and that was totally fine. We we wanted this to be optional. That's why we phrased it the way we did. We said we invite people, right? But um of of the people that that did address it, uh I think most of them did it in a really sort of in a, in a really kind of sensible not very controversial way which is they talk about it in the context of their work right so there's a there's a few people who are you know early career people who are doing meta science research who are writing you know right, they have blogs or they're sort of actively involved that's a pretty small and and in our department that's where you know the that's cool, we're into that. But, you know, I understand that those are the people that sort of, like, they're putting themselves out there on open science as open science. But the majority of people, and even, and this includes those people as well, because they're also doing this, it's like, this is part of how I do my work. And so it, you know, you frame it in the context of your work. You say, you know, I, in your research statement, you talk about a, a replication you ran because it helped you you know, to plan a study that you were going to do that's part of your research program. So you make it part of, you know, it's the work, it's not you, it's programmatic, it's part of what you do, or you say, you know, as I've, you know, recently adopted pre-registration and, and, you know, or you just say like, you know, in your future directions, you're saying, I've got the study in progress in a pre-registered study, blah, blah, blah. And you just kind of, you work it in there, um, and that and so it's it's about the work and it's about the research and the science and and I think that extra step of like declaring an identity and values that can also be important, but I think there are ways short of that that you just it's just part of how you talk about your work, and just like you would you know in a research statement talk about how your work is multi method or talk about how you do uh you know field work with real samples or you do, you know all these other things that are sort of strengths of the science that you would kind of feature in an application you, you talk about open data and open materials and you know, whatever else you're doing in the same way
2: yeah mm-hmm. I think in most parts of the application it wouldn't be hard to talk about it or make it a, a feature without it being in, your, in people's faces or having to sacrifice much to incorporate that I think the one part where I think there are really tough decisions that have to be made where I wouldn't want to have to do this over again now is the job talk um, I think that a lot of people, as audience members, even if they don't think they want this, they actually want you know someone to give an entertaining, splashy job talk. And I think even some of us who don't want to reward that, you know, if we if we enjoy the talk more, we're more entertained, etc., We might then rate the applicant higher because of that, without realizing that that's what's influencing us. So I think that that's a tricky. That's got to be tricky for people. Is that a, a genuine trade-off?
1: Like, so, is it, are, like, uh, I don't know, maybe when you use words like splashy or whatever, or like, splashiness and open scienciness inherently at odds with each other? Or is splashiness, like, something we shouldn't aspire to? I think it's not at odds with the specific practices
2: of how to do research, but I think it's a, I think when it comes to interpreting the results, um, there's a correlation. Part of the reason to adopt these practices is to calibrate our confidence more appropriately. And I think when we adopt these practices, the result is often that we realize we shouldn't be as confident as we thought before we adopted these practices. And so if we want to be true to that in the interpretation, not just in the design and collection of the data analysis, but like then in the interpretation, um, I think we have to be less bold in what we claim that we know now which I think puts us in a really difficult position to give a job talk.
1: Right,
0: yeah. Yeah, I think in, in some ways that, that might be the the harder part of it, which is like you can, I think you can talk in a very organic way about your work and about do, doing various practices as part of your work. I think what's harder is when the other things that are conventionally looked for in applicants are affected by it. So you've, you know, if you've published fewer papers because you've run larger samples in the work that you've done, um, if you've, uh, uh, you know, if you don't have as clean and, and sort of like narratively compelling a story because you pre-registered and your pre-registered results aren't as tidy as the ones you could have p hacked your way mm-hmm. to or something like that. Right. I think th- those things are those things are harder to to figure out the, the, because that's essentially like you know adding on open science practices is just like I'm doing all, if you if it was just like I'm doing all the things we've historically been supposed to do and there are these new best practices and I've added them too then you're just it's everything and more. Um, but yeah, if, if it sort of changes your story, I think you have to, and I, I don't think we've as collectively as a field figured out like how to reconcile good narrative and storytelling with things that are going to sort of change our ability to, to do that.
2: Yeah, but now that I think about like this conversation, I also think, I remember even 10 years ago, Is that possible? Yeah, 10 years ago, I could have been on a search committee and I was um, caring if people were too flashy. And even if they had too many publications and so that alone wouldn't be a bad thing, but if they had too many publications and some of them were weak, I think then it like had this multiplicative effect where like if someone had a more moderate number of publications and like one or two were weak, I think that didn't hurt them as much as someone who had what seemed like an impossible number and there were signs that some of them were weak, then it makes you worry that like, they took shortcuts to get that many. So, and that was before replicability and, and psych. So maybe I'm, maybe I, yeah, maybe I take back some of, I do think there's still this tension in job talks, but maybe it was always there. Maybe you always have to walk this like fine line between rigor and selling your results. And those are somewhat in tension, but that's always been true. And maybe that balance is shifting a little bit now. I think what's hard is that you don't know what the specific department you're going into wants, but that also has always been true, right? That departments mm-hmm. have always varied quite a bit from one to the next about what they're going to count as impressive or what's going to backfire and so on.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, that's. I think that's a really good point is like... I've I can remember you know before 2011 you know back in the old <laughs> in the in the asterisk era or whatever like you know yeah people people would give job talks and people would be like oh my god you know and have all kinds of complaints about whatever it was about the too flashy or about something and then the, you know you'd see those people would get jobs somewhere else and I'm sure the same thing was going the other way we were hiring people that someone else was like good god how could you hire so and so. And so there, there are these like weird variable idiosyncratic things. And so, you know, there are going to be departments that are going to, or search committees or whatever that are going to value those signals of rigor enough to, and, and, and are are going to discount the flashy stuff that doesn't have them. And then there are going to be some that aren't and, and you're going to, but that's true of everything else. Like there were when i was on the job market there were lots of departments that didn't want to hire a personality psychologist and i just wasn't going to get an interview there or in one or two cases got an interview and then they're like who the f- okay. wait why did you guys bring this person out or whatever you know and it was just like look that's beyond my control like that's what i do yeah. um uh and and uh and you know they they didn't like things about either who i was or the the way that i did my work or something like that and and so i think to some extent like you can't you can't be a candidate that's going to appeal to everyone um and so you've just got to like stand by your strengths which sounds like such a fucking like i've got a job and tenure uh privileged thing to say so I'd <laughs> i i should, somebody should probably smack me for saying that but it kind of it's it's a little true i realize it's it's well, more complicated that, than that well i think you know
2: many things are just, it's just so hard to predict what's going to get you positive um, attention and things like that. And right. and it's shifting all the time. So like just this week, um, Brian Resnick did a story on Vox.com about a paper that came out on how many atheists are there. It was a Will Gervais paper, full disclosure, it was published in SPPS. But he said on Twitter that like one of the reasons he wanted to write about this paper in particular is he's been trying to find examples of psych studies that have messy results and not a clear conclusion, but that is still like really interesting. You can tell an interesting story about the process of trying to answer this question and then like some incremental you know, knowledge gained without answering the question completely so like, you know, who would have predicted that that would be something that a journalist would pick up on, so I think trying to bet on what's going to be like sexy or what's going to be popular um, on the job market or elsewhere is always a gamble anyway so maybe bet on the thing that you also feel good about doing and feel is right is a I don't know. I know it's naive. I know it's easy to say
1: from my my position. Yeah. I mean it it might be naive, but I think that um I think that people can make a lot of sacrifices when they're trying to anticipate what people prioritize um on the job market and I think that um probably people are Yeah, this is an empirical question. This is my guess is that people are going to overestimate how much they'll be punished for like being identified as an open science person um, than they actually will be. I think that that if anything, they'll they may be rewarded. Um, So I think that it is a really big sacrifice to sort of like downplay that or hide that or not develop that just because you're anticipating that people are going to be you're going to be punished for it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we, you know, in our search this year, we, I I don't want to get too much into details of specific people, but, you know, I I had conversations with all the candidates before they came out, and sometimes it would come up, like, how should I talk about this stuff? Um, And they, you know, they would say, I've been sort of warned to be careful about this. Um, And, you know, given the kind of department we are, I was like, nope, talk about it. We want to know. Like, we we're going to respond really positively to that. Mm-hmm. Um uh and and again I don't I don't discount the fact that like they were getting those warnings. Like I, I don't think they were I don't think they were imagining things, right? But uh mm-hmm. um that was something that uh you know played really well here and and that um had they had they been too cautious, they wouldn't have shown things about their work that we valued.
2: Yeah. Right. I mean, so here's the story. Uh, I, I wasn't on a search committee this year, but I got a phone call from somebody that I know, mod- like a little bit, not very well, at another university, who was the chair of a search committee, and they had interviewed a candidate that I also barely know. But this person thought I knew the candidate better, and he called me, and he's, and this is not somebody that you would think of as like a major open science person, blah blah, and from a department that you definitely not think of as that kind of department. Um, he called me and they were like about to make the job candidate an offer, but his main reservation was that when he asked the job candidate about these issues, best practices and things like that, the job candidate had clearly hadn't really thought about it, or that was his impression anyway. Um, and he was worried about that. And this was like, I don't know, this wasn't my department, this wasn't a department that I would have thought of as a department that would care about this. And I, yeah, I thought that was interesting. and, and it gives gives me some pause about repeating this thing that like yeah being an open science person is can hurt you. I think it definitely can hurt you, but I also think yeah we underestimate how much this kind of stuff happens. Of like wait what you don't you don't know the latest on what's happening like that can hurt you too. Even from people who themselves aren't necessarily the most you know involved in that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean I think that's that's where like there there's there's an opportunity to play against type or get play against people's stereotypes a little bit too, right? So I think there's there's a lot of people, especially kind of uh more senior, either mid-career or senior, who aren't fully plugged into the discussion. They've they're sort of aware that there's a discussion going on around these issues. And there's a part of them that that kind of is like, yeah, these, these things sound legit, and then there's a part of them that's very Sort of hesitant for various reasons because uh, um, they, you know, they feel like things are getting. There's some nasty attacks. They've heard that they, you know, they they read in the APS Observer that there are nasty personal attacks or or that you know there are all these strident people. Um, And then somebody comes along and they're just talking about their substantive research and they they just bring in these issues in a sort of like this is part of what I do way and it's like oh you're not one of those like scary people that i've heard about right. you're and and these things that like part of me has been kind of feeling like yeah maybe there's some maybe there's some legs to this uh um like you're you're articulating why the, the the thing that i suspect is good about this is good and you're not doing the bad stuff um and so i think there there's yeah there's an opportunity to sort of um not be the boogeyman um, and to, to sort of demonstrate that like you know' you're, you're doing these things that are part of where the people sort of on some level know that the field is headed
1: right yeah, I think um, I think if I were advising someone to be like extremely careful and I was really, really worried about um, like a particular job that they were applying to, like it working against them to categorize themselves in that way, there are still a lot of open science practices that you can advertise that are relatively uncontroversial. I think there are things that we've always valued, right? Like, I mean, you can be, like, reluctant to say that posting your data or your materials um, uh, should be a universal rule, but I don't think that anybody's going to penalize someone for doing it. I think people are only going to be impressed with that, Um, like increasing your sample sizes, those kinds of things. I think, yeah, maybe there's a way to talk about those things without, like, suggesting that you're going to trash someone on Twitter or something.
2: Yeah, and again, I think this goes back to something that's always been an issue when you're on the job market, is when you're talking to people who do different research than you, by definition, you've chosen to focus on different topics and different methods, so you have different value judgments about the best way to spend your time and what's worth researching, and a trick of being a job candidate is to promote your way of doing things and why why you're studying important topics and using good methods without putting Mm -hmm. down what other people... The choices they made. And that's true both for replicability related things, but even more broadly, right? So, like, if you're an fMRI person and you're gonna be interviewing with a bunch of people who don't do fMRI, you, you, there's some small burden on you to make it clear that you don't think that their research is crap just because they don't do the same thing you do. Um, yeah. that's less, or vice versa. Right. <laughs> but so I think as personality psychologists, we don't have that burden because I don't think anybody thinks that we're better than anybody else so that we could even possibly think that we're better than anybody else. But there's other, right, whether it's the method or the topic or whatever, right? Like, I think there's always a little bit of a burden on job candidate to show that you're not judging other people who have made different choices than you that are reasonable choices.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so, I mean, I think, like, if... If you're if you're gonna be on the job market this fall and you're thinking about this and you're thinking about like how does this act, what does this actually look like in my written application, for example, I think, you know, going back to your program of research and, and in a very sort of I statement y way, the way you're talking about saying like, This is what I do and this is why for me, I think this is enhancing my work, right? And and then it uh um you know, and then that, that becomes, and, and so you're not saying, like, I think everybody should do this. I think that everybody should make their data open or else they're, you know, a slimy jerk or whatever. You're just saying, like, as part of what I do, I do X, Y, and Z, and it's been beneficial for my field because other people have used my data in this way or whatever. Um, yeah, so- and and that also, like sometimes that you know for the people that kind of want to dip a toe and if they sort of feel like you'd be a good colleague in other ways they're like oh and this person could like teach my students how to do this or could teach me how to do this or whatever you know and I've seen a lot of that in our department where you know (laughs) like someone (laughs) mentions that they use github and somebody will be like oh I I want my students to learn github or whatever or you know something like that and so uh, um yeah, that that was kind of a funny moment. So yeah.
2: I'm sure we don't have any listeners who think this, but just in case we do, if you are somebody who thinks everybody should be doing X and isn't, right, should you keep <laughs> that to yourself when on, on you're on the job market? Is that the implication of what we're saying?
1: No, I, I think that's just the less careful way. So like, I, I think that I would encourage someone to um, be vocal about that if that's what they think. Um, but if I were telling someone to be extremely cautious, um, so yeah, I think you avoid some risks by not saying that, but you also avoid some rewards.
0: Yeah, I think, I think there are good and bad ways of doing that. I mean, I think like anything else you would, that's part of how you present yourself you have to be ready to defend that right like if you if you think everybody should like you know i have a colleague in biology who thinks like everybody in psychology should be studying neurons mm-hmm. and he, he thinks that, <laughs> he thinks that there's no point in doing anything psychological that doesn't have a neuron in the methods and uh it's like okay you back that shit up because you know i don't agree with you and so like if uh um like if if that's if that's going to be your your position then then be, you have got to make the case for it right um, you're but i think there's not, another you're not
2: going to get the job i'm sorry <laughs> like let's just Well try.
0: okay but then then you're not going to get the job yeah. i mean then, so then if you're you willing you're not to... compatible right so it
2: depends how but, strong But, you but there's feel another about way it. of
0: yeah because there's a way that... The, and this is this is a substantive difference this isn't just a presentational difference there are people that you know have that are sort of in that ballpark but you know the way they approach it is this is what we should be moving towards right. And, and you know, changing the I can system present. so
2: that people are more incentivized to do it rather than uh, Yes.
0: Yeah. And I can present myself as someone who's going to be a resource in, you know, helping my students and my colleagues move in this direction and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to be going around condemning people. I am going to be saying this is an exciting new direction for the field. Um, and you know and again, not everyone's going to respond well to that, but I think people are going to respond a lot better to that way of presenting yourself.
2: Yeah, right. yeah I think so. I mean I think that the blunt truth is that if you actually don't respect people who don't do x then you, <laughs> then, you then say it so they don't hire well, you because yeah, <laughs> you don't you want to work to with people you don't respect pretending that you respect them and living with them mm-hmm. that for not just during the interview like beyond the interview or no. don't yeah maybe you're you, it, like try to find that rare department where they all do X, but, you know, good luck with that, because that's going to be hard. Or where they're
0: okay with having people that disagree. Right, but disagree,
2: but but so if it's disagreement, that's one thing, but if you really, like, if you're judging people for not doing X, you know, that's a a really tough position to be in on the job market, and and I think you either need to get over that and try to find a way to not judge people or, like, understand where they're coming from and why they're doing it, even though you're convinced it's the wrong thing to do, so that mm -hmm. you can go into it and still have respect for them and, and present it in this more broader way of like, let's change the system so that we encourage X rather than blaming individuals. Maybe this maybe this person doesn't exist. Maybe I'm like inventing a job. No, candidate. They, they,
0: they do. I'm just, I'm not sure I want to help them get a job. Yeah, right. No, <laughs> like I want I want to help the people that have a vision of what they want science to be. And some people, their vision is what everyone should be doing. And that's great. Mm. And I think there are ways to do that. I think... If I'm, I'm, <laughs> you're a finger-wagger, uh, you're, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, I, I'm, you know, like...
2: And it really shouldn't... That's not, that's
0: not going to get you a job. And
2: it shouldn't be that hard to have perspective-taking and compassion for people who aren't doing what you think they should be doing. Like, it, once you actually talk to people and listen to them, if you don't still... If you can't find a way to respect them and want to help improve the broader system, then, yeah, like, maybe you're just way too demanding yeah. of other people Basic,
0: basically if you're a dick about open science <laughs> yeah, right. maybe you shouldn't have a job <laughs> <laughs> okay cool <laughs> well that
1: pretty much that pretty much sums it up <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Did>
0: that, <laughs> no. i think oh should that be our episode title also if you're a dick about it anyway okay um uh how to get a job okay, for nice that, uh, open
2: science people? Yes, there we go. <laughs> it's uh, not big open science people. <laughs>
0: uh, all right, Do, <laughs> is that really how we're going to end? I'm, I'm fine with that. But uh, yeah,
2: I think so. Okay, think so.
0: Think so. Think <laughs> all right. Well, uh, um, well, this is this has been fun. Uh, so, uh, listeners, you have been listening to the Black Vote podcast. Uh, you can find us. On Twitter at Black Goat Pod. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, Our website is www.theblackgoatpodcast.com. You can email us at letters at blackgoat, or sorry, letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. And I think that's it. We'll see you next time.